there it is. You start, you hit record. It's underway, yeah. And it's, this is... It's silky smooth. I mean, we've, you know, tested the equipment, but this is the first live... I mean, this is going out there. Yeah. This um, is going This out. is the new equipment. And, and, and it's going to be heard by other people. Yeah. So this is the pre-roll. Yes. So there's a guest today. There is a guest. We're, we're back in the saddle for that, yeah. Yeah. And what do you want to talk about in the pre-roll, Joe? Uh, I don't know. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm busy. Yeah. Lots going on. It's true. Lots going on. Getting getting several papers done uh, or, you know, in, in line for submission. Yep. And Abstracts and... Another one for a conference. Things and stuff's happening. drafting. And trying to pay attention to the news. And yeah, that's a... Family and, you know, it's, uh, everything's, uh, you know, it's life. There's a lot going on. It's life. Yep. Feedback at oralargument.org. What is that? That is the address to send... Um, hate mail to us. Oh, cool. How about love mail? Would that also go to feedback yeah, at yeah. oralargument.org? Yeah. Right. That that too. Or just like hello mail or like mail. Or, or I've got an idea mail. Here's, or uh, hey, you should have X as a guest mail. Like you could send uh, an email about virtually any topic. To That's right. Feedback at oralargument.org. You're right about that. So so positive feedback should go to feedback at oralargument.org. And also, you can post it on iTunes and on Twitter. Just post that everywhere. Hate mail. <laughs> I, you know, now that I think about it, just send that to Joe Miller at JoeMiller.com. Oh, my God. <laughs> I wonder if there is a JoeMiller.com, and I wonder if there's an email address that is Joe Miller at JoeMiller.com. Mm. If there is a, a website, JoeMiller.com, and there, and there, it could it there be well that, might be. Wasn't there a politician up in Alaska with that name? There was. He, he probably has it, He right? ran for the Senate in Alaska. I do not. That is not a URL with which I have any personal connection other than the fact that my name is Joe Miller. Not yet. I mean, um, we, we, should, we should look. Maybe oh my. a listener could buy it for you. It's a gift. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, pl- don't, you know, don't send hate mail at all. Ah, like critical mail. Think critical about, mail is okay. Yes, constructive criticism emails are great. Yes. Um, I think if, if what you're feeling is hate and what you'd like to <laughs> express in the written word is hate, <laughs> right. I think it would be better to back away from the keyboard, take a deep breath, and think about whether or not hate is really where you want to be right. and what you want to convey. Right. And maybe it isn't. Maybe instead there's a, there's a more constructive and hopeful and engaged way that you could email us. <laughs> Well, I didn't know you were going to get serious about it. I'm not, serious, I'm not trying to be no, super serious, well, but, I mean, I, but you're I, exactly right. You should like hate. Hate is you know like hate's not a cool thing. No, and there's boy, are there a lot of people trying to pump a lot of it into all of our ear holes and eye holes and whatnot? As the quote has been attributed, I think to many different individuals, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Hate is a form of ignorance. So you know, I don't like if we. If listening to us is the occasion for that emotion, I, I just want to invite that person to please, again, push back from the keyboard, yeah. push back from the podcast player, and like take a deep breath. I don't and, hate, and maybe don't listen do, to us do anymore. You, do you hate watch or hate listen to anything? Not really. It you don't seem like the type. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I really don't. I, I don't either. I, I don't think I do. I'm trying to think. Because I just find it very boring. If I'm having the reaction that, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't enjoy watching a thing thinking, oh, this is terrible. Yeah, why like would you? I, like, if I think it's terrible, I'm just going to stop. Unless it, there are people who like bad movies, but they like to have you know yucks about them with their friends. Exactly, that, and right? in that that's sense, a, they are bad. They're watching. actually amusing. Yeah, it's not hate watching. Yeah, it's that's fun watching. It's like you're amused by how bad it is. Right. 
And yeah, and it can be in a good spirit. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, negative. Yeah. Um, yeah, but hate watching. It's like, can you imagine? Like you know, you know, there are people who get really angry about other people's driving. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Road rage is a thing. Yeah, it's the kind of person who I don't know the kind of person, but the kind of person who would say, I don't know, like you know, you wouldn't believe how bad the drivers are in my town. Mm. Right. You know, everywhere you go, you meet people who say that the drivers there are really bad, or the drivers are the worst ever, or yeah. like you know, the weather here changes all the time, as if like every place doesn't have a statement. About it. <laughs> if yeah, you wait around is, long enough, the weather will change. Yeah, bad you know? bad driving is like a, a trope or, yeah. or a thing that some people seem to fasten on, right? About their situation, but nobody, ha- nobody, well, to my knowledge, hate drives. They don't like go around like enjoying being cut off by other drivers so that they can feel the emotion of anger and hate, right? So why would you why would you consume something? Why would you watch something that you hate? No one no one eats something that's gross. Just what well, I keep saying no one. Yeah, not and that last one in particular, I think you're I think you could be wrong about that. But, the, but no, the, no one eats something that's gross in order to experience uh, aversion and revulsion. They, they again, eat things I that you think are gross. No, no, no. I think I think there could be people who like there is a, a form of therapy that is putting yourself through a thing that you think is going to be bad so that you can overcome that. Yes. That, worry or that anxiety right um and and that person would be consuming it just ah. f- just because well, it is the thing about which they have that reaction a little homeopathy of the mind i suppose just i'm not a homeopathy person just a little so. tad of the bad thing so that the bad thing isn't so bad yes uh there you go i i'm not a homeopath either uh so uh that's why i was thinking eh, i'm not sure i agree with that statement there's also a form of, there's a form of meditation where you meditate on the grotesque or um, or, or things that you might think of as grotesque in order to see them as not grotesque in order to be more real, if you like. Oh, okay. Um, but, it, you know, it's... it's a, it, it, that, that's not enjoying a negative thing. Again, that's not, that's not hate meditating. Right. But it's appreciating that you have negative reactions to the thing and, sure. and that those are... The negativity is the thing that you're imposing on it. Mm. And by realizing that it's a thing that you're imposing on it, you can let go of it and then you don't have that anymore. And you have a, like a better balanced approach to, or the next time the it arises, you can just sort of surf through that thing much as you would through any other thing. Right. You can uh, fo- like in like foster a kind of detachment or an ability to simply have the feeling and then let it go. Yeah, exactly. Supposed to dwelling on it yeah. or letting it like ruminating super upset and all you that. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, it occurs to me, people. Yeah, they don't do that. They they also don't watch like if people did, like. Can you imagine people like renting videos uh, from the first person perspective as if they're in a car? Where they, what they watch is people behave badly on the road, like cutting them off, so that they can, uh, so that they can, like you know, in the privacy of their own home, like give the finger or yell or do all the things. Yeah, that's that they, a little weird. Yeah, it would be weird, right? Mm. People don't hate watching that way. Gosh, I got now. I'm thinking there's a YouTube supercut that is like <laughs> just that, and people do it. You know, the other thing I'm, re- I'm remembering is like so so early in life. Uh, sometimes, if you got like if you had a a tooth that hurt or if you had a cut that hurt or something like that, you might like push on it to get that, to feel the negative feeling to, to just learn about what the negative feeling is. Mm. Is this ringing a bell for you? Well, I know that sometimes you would have like an intense like itch or an acute pain and you would like, um, uh, make it more intense in order for it to go away. Right, or, or, or like a dull thing that like you would want to, you know, make right. that stop by making it more. Or almost like, is it still there? Hmm. Like, and, you know, bear, sort of bear down on it. Just, just like, is it still there? And maybe it'll go, maybe it won't feel as bad once I let go. If hmm. I, yeah, it's just weird. Like you're a kid, so you're, like you're trying stuff because life's weird. Uh, so you're saying that you don't do that anymore. <laughs> 
That is correct. I also, it, sadly, it has to be said, because I simply don't own a lot of things or really any things that, that require 9-volt batteries. Uh, I'm no longer routinely taking a 9-volt battery and putting both contacts on my tongue, <laughs> which as a kid I used to do all the time. I've got a bunch of... Because it's so... I used to... Well, when yeah. I was a kid, I thought it was super fun. I never... There were kids who did that. It always kind of grossed me out. It tastes electric. I like, ha- you yeah, can taste no, the electricity. I I, I've heard. I've heard. But yeah. it, there, there's a part of me that is um, that is irrationally, probably... Um, uh, I have some aversion to that. Like, this idea that maybe it's contaminating. This, this, this like, you know, that there, maybe the, there's something in it which is coming into me, which is a foreign... Like, I, I think I have more worry about that kind of thing than usual. That the electricity is... No, not the electricity, but the chemical parts of the... The batteries are chemical, right? Well, and, inside the casing. Yeah, exactly. But it seems like it just felt as a kid. <laughs> okay. Um, are you are you criticizing me for my irrationality as a child? Based Not on at what, all. I'm after just what trying, you just said. No, I'm trying to understand yeah. where you're coming from, man. It just felt like it was a, a yeah that that there were some kind of chemicals or there was something in there that would that was impure in some ways okay. that like I could get like contaminated with and it might ooze out. Yeah, and maybe it's because as a kid, you know, you see lots of especially like in the. 70s and 80s like you know car batteries which have the like the, the goop which kind of comes out because they've been corroded like yeah when i saw a battery i thought well you know it's just like a few months away or the wrong you know the wrong heat or uh, right, exactly. cooling cycle away from like oozing a bunch of that stuff and and there's probably a little bit on there already <laughs> right you probably can't see it but it's probably already there yeah it could be there like microscopically hmm. wow yeah it's all it's all that's all true uh i with abandon licked the the contact <laughs> it doesn't surprise me Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I did not. I did not do that. It, it actually. It doesn't. Are you being serious? It doesn't surprise you. If if I had given you a little survey before to predict, like when Joe was a kid, did he do the following things? And no, on because that list was I mean, it, you would have. You you. Based on the stories that you've told, I would I would extend those to reach this right. So you told stories about like you, you like fires. You were a little fire setter. You like you like striking matches and things. And let's so let's be specific. Okay, right? Specificity okay. of this is the soul of narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I would. I would light matches. I didn't set fires like generally speaking. Sounds more like it's specificity. Not an Sounds more like specificity is the soul of exculpation. <laughs> that too. In this case, that too. Yeah, I don't want to. We're not retconning me into some arson scenarios here. Yeah, you were not a fire starter. You were not that kid yes. in that meme who's like the house is burning and she's looking back with the satisfied eyes. You, right. know this, you know this picture? Nor am I a fire starter in the sense of like the Stephen King character who's able to actually uh, telekinetically or psychokinetically yeah. start fires. I don't know if I ever read... Played or, by Drew Barrymore, I think, I did, in the I movie I don't think version. I ever read that or saw that. I was not a big Stephen King reader. I both read it and saw it and mm-hmm. thought it was awesome. Of I course, right? being in middle school and too young to see Christine when it came out. Mm. But like that was all the hotness. Right. And I'm like, I got to see this Speaking movie. Speaking of. I got to see Firestarter, this. the hotness. Mm. Uh. That's not. <laughs> that's not. I want to dissociate this podcast from that sort of joke. Okay. okay. Uh, if I could have a superpower, uh, being able to start fires by the force of my mind would, would be a serious contender. What a boring power. It, agreed. But I'm just telling you, it would be on the top five for sure that not, I would contemplate. Not like stopping time. That's another great one. But I'm, so we're just <laughs> which I, one? This is why I'm talking top five. Which man. one is better? You the, of those two? Mm-hmm. Do you think our guest is going to hear this, by the way, and think, <laughs> "My God, what did I agree to?" Like, <laughs> I should have insisted on final cut. This was not in my writer. Yeah, tell me about it. You know. Um, 
just between those two. Stop time or start fire is okay, in your so, mind. So question, am I uh, still able to uh, move and think and act in a world where I've stopped time? Is it stopping time for everyone but me? Well, wait, if you can't move, think, or act, then how would you know that you stopped time? Well, You have to at least be able to do one of those this things. This is one of the many issues. Moving without thought would be difficult. This is yeah. one of the many issues of yeah. this superpower. But right. like, so the details matter. Yeah. If I could stop time and it's the superpower is time stops for five minutes, but I don't get to experience the fact that everyone else has time stopped and I don't, then... A, how would I know? B, I might actually already have that power. C, <laughs> that's not very fun. Yeah, yeah, right. Right, right. So I need, to, I need to know more. Whereas I kind of understand the contours of start fires with your mind. Like I kind mm. of get that. I think it has to include at least the ability to perceive that you've stopped time. Okay. So I think that means that you can still use your senses at least. Okay. Now, we could stipulate that you can also move around. Can you, like, move other people around or do things? Because, like, one thing you could do is start a fire while time has stopped. Right. And then what's the difference between that and starting a fire with your mind? Mm, so does does the ability to stop time include many, 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 many other powers as I, a practical matter? Yeah, I think it might. I think it might. And here's another way to think about it. it. Is stopping time, is it really that you've stopped time or is it simply that you're moving exceptionally quickly? Relative to everyone else. Wasn't this that show Heroes? Remember that show on... Oh, that was a good NBC show. Yeah. It was good for like the first season and a half, and then it got terrible. Yeah, I think I only really saw the first season and a half. Okay. But wasn't there a guy who was able to stop time and um, maybe he was Japanese? Uh, there, I, think there were some, uh, I think there were some characters who were Japanese. Uh I think he was... Was he stopping time, or was he just moving quickly? I feel like he had a coin, and he was... Yeah, that's what I was trying to remember. Maybe he was just moving quick. I think he stopped time. Okay. But I'm not but, sure. But in the limit, uh, is being able to move quickly any different from stopping time? Well, it, you know, being able to move quickly, just purely move quickly, is like the Flash, I guess. I, and, I'm not a superhero but guy. But I'm saying so. relative to everybody else... To be clear, I'm not a superhero guy. Right, but they would seem to be motionless to you. Relative to right. you, they're moving... But as, does the Flash just move quickly, or does he also think quickly? Um, so do things appear slow to him, or does he just realize, oh my god, I'm running like really fast? Right. At the normal thought level. Like yeah. at the normal speed of thought. Right. Hmm. Like I don't run as fast as Usain Bolt. Sure, sure. Like you realize that. I do realize that. Okay. About you. Um, I mean, you've never seen me run. So maybe you should withhold judgment, but I'll just stipulate that I don't run as fast as okay. Usain Bolt, and I'm and I'm happy to accept that stipulation. It okay. sounds it, it really has the ring of truth. <laughs> and uh, um, but if I did, if I were able to, I don't think time would. Although you know our perceptions of time and slowing down, they say this about like uh, you know fighter pilots or, or or people who land these like super fast jets, or even when you're landing like a commercial jet, you know you train on like a Cessna or something like that. These these slow planes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have time, you know, you get set up in the pattern and you come in. Yeah, just a second. Oh, is she ready? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you get set up in the pattern, you come into the runway, you adjust the flaps and all that, and you, you kind of get lined up, you have all this time, right? Yeah. And as you go to faster and faster aircraft, you just, time compresses, you have less time. People say this about playing soccer in the Premier League, too. You know, you play soccer at the lower levels and all of a sudden you get to the Premier League and it's like you have to make all these decisions much faster. But presumably you're better at making them. But as you get more experienced, I think time slows down for you. In other words, you're making the same decisions, but like it, you, it just feels like you've got longer to make them. Mm. Some people talk about it in those terms. Okay. So our perceptions of time are interesting. Should we talk about this with our guest? Sure. Did I answer it? You did answer it. 
Uh, this is Christian. And Joe. So it's Professor Debbie Hellman of UGA. UVA. No. UVA. <laughs> UVA. We are off to an amazing start. Uh, yes. Um, in, in case you couldn't tell, uh, Debbie, this is a very professional podcast. And, uh, <laughs> we, 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 don't, don't worry. The, 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 the researcher who gave Joe that index card will be fired at the end of this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, and I will be able to fire him very quickly because it was me. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so before we talk about your amazingly great paper, uh, Theory of Bribery, we were talking about superpowers. Do we want to talk to her about superpowers, starting fires versus stopping time? I'm going to let you decide. It's your show. Okay. Let's 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 bracket that for a second. <laughs> okay. Let's come back to that <laughs> if we feel like we've got, you know, some time at the end. Oh no, dude, start with the superhero stuff. Go ahead. Just ask her. And it'll lead in. It'll get So you know, which superpower would you rather have? The ability to start fires with your mind or the ability to stop time? You get to keep moving and thinking and doing stuff once you stop time for everybody else. Definitely to stop time. Yeah, it's such an easy question, isn't it? Well, especially yeah. after yeah. you pointed out that you can start fires once you stop time, you can just walk around starting fires. <laughs> right. But like, also, I mean, can I say that there are a lot of fires out there we don't really want to have, whereas time is going awfully fast? These are great points. I was a bit, I was a, I was uh, quite a match lighter as a kid. Like I loved to just get books of matches and light match after match. Just to be clear, everybody, this is Joe. That's Joe Miller who's speaking. Uh, <laughs> I'm Christian Turner, but that's Joe Miller talking yes. about lighting matches. And so I really enjoyed that. St- and I would like if we had a fire in the fireplace, I would just sit and stare at it. I just find fire mm-hmm. fascinating. So mm-hmm. for me, having the fire starting superpower would be pretty pleasurable. Uh, but mm-hmm. but again, I'll just stop time and start fires, and then I'll put them out. I'm not trying to get. I, I just think it's not mag- trying to be destructive. I think it's absolutely magnificent that your first thought didn't go to, oh, if I had these superpowers, it would be to like be able to put out fires with my mind and save lives instead. No, let me. How about I start more? <laughs> let's, let's start. Yeah, I think we need to change the question. Stop time and put out fires, or maybe you could make the time one be something more active rather than than stopping. Yeah. Hmm. Like control time, so you could speed it up or you could slow it down. Reversing mm-hmm. it causes all kinds of causes all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you had that power if you'd really want it. The ability to reverse time, it seems to me, is something that you would. I, I could see uh, um, a film or a book about the ability to reverse time resulting mm-hmm. in madness. Mm, r- madness, you think? Yeah, I think actual madness. It would be agonizing, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, it, it accentuates all of our worst instincts as people. I think. And it'd be you so... mean to have regrets? Yeah, it, to be able to revisit. Like you're going to, you know, I think it will just trap you in an endless loop of rumination. Uh, that, because you have some agency over this now. Right. It's impossible to let anything go. You, it, you can always do something different. I think we have mm-hmm. our movie title. What's that? <laughs> the Ruminant. <laughs> and it would be about someone who was able to uh, turn back time and relive that moment. Mm, as thought, many times as they like. I thought it was going to be about a deer or something else. <laughs> All right, so you take it away, Joe. So uh, this paper is amazing. It's great. I want to ask you about uh, something that uh, we're talking about the notion of bribery and Mm -hmm. the complications involved in actually understanding uh, what bribery is and how to Mm -hmm. distinguish it from some other things that our intuitions might tell us uh, are not bribery. Some things that our intuitions would clearly tell us are bribery. One thing mm-hmm. I wanted to start with, which which is not an example in the paper, but that I was awfully curious about as I read yeah. the paper, and I was wondering what you what you might think of it. So, or how you might how you might explain uh, that I think 
our intuition is that it's that the following is not bribery. Uh, And that is, uh, think about, and and I'll use my own sort of focus on IP law and antitrust law and stuff to this, these examples came to my mind very readily, right? So uh, you file a patent application or you file a trademark application or you file Hart Scott Rodino review papers at the antitrust division. Uh, there's a fee. You, you pay a filing fee. And if you don't pay this fee, uh, the government process that's going to act on the materials that you submit doesn't get underway. So in order to get this person to do their official act, uh, you have to give them money, right? Uh, that be, and it, because it's a user fee driven, that that's right. how the agency action is set up, right? It's paid for and driven by, and therefore initiated by, user fees. So you've got a person paying a government official in order to influence a, a government action, namely to get it started, um, right? What what? Th- but of course, people wouldn't think that was bribery. And if you see, right. if you ask them why it wasn't bribery, they would look at you like, well, "Are you dumb?" But so so why? Why isn't it bribery? Right. Great question. And actually, I think a question that I don't adequately fully flesh out in the article that you like. And luckily for me, I got to write another sort of shortened version of it for um, a a book uh, put out by Paul Grave and edited in part by my colleague, Kim Frizan. So I'll just tout that there. And the part um, that I emphasize in in that uh, shorter piece is builds on the article you read, A Theory of Bribery, to say that the things that are exchanged have to be things of different value, which your example has, but adds an additional element, which I think is kind of hinted at but not fully developed in the piece, which is it has to be an exchange between things of different uh, from different domains that's prohibited by the relevant decision maker. So your example is kind of a, a a, a good example, but really we could go with something even more commonplace, which is any kind of sale. I mean, I don't bribe the store owner to sell me the sweater because I go in there and offer money to get the sweater. Um, so we often have exchanges of things from different domains of value, and that's a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition for bribery. It also has to be an exchange that's prohibited by the relevant decision maker. And I leave that fairly um, undefined because I think there's both a descriptive question about who is the authoritative or relevant decision maker in the particular context. And in your example, it's surely the government that permits that exchange. Um, And a normative question about who ought to be the relevant decision maker Mm. in any particular context. So one example might be just thinking of the kind of Varsity Blues bribery scandals we had about um, admissions uh, recently. Oh, yeah. Um, So you could say, um, so not to focus on those particular facts, but what people called the backdoor, which is not bribery, um, where somebody, a wealthy individual, says to the president or says to the admissions official, hey, I'll donate, you know, $20 million for a building if you accept my underqualified uh, child. (laughs) And um, if, so that's an exchange of values of different domains, money for lowering the admissions credentials, but in a realm in which we think that, you know, that those are, ought to be kept distinct. But 
if we imagine that the admissions official calls up the president of the university and says, what do you think? Should we do this? And the president approves it. We wouldn't call it the crime of bribery because it's approved by the relevant decision maker. And that distinguishes it from the side door uh, cases that we had in the Varsity Blues scandal. But still, you can imagine some faculty members who are, you know, let's say, uh, dismayed by this, who use the term bribery. They say the president's allowing the university to be bribed or something like that. They may use the term as a way of signaling that they think that that's an exchange that ought not to have been authorized. So they're using it sort of quasi-metaphorically. They don't actually think it's the crime of bribery if the president of the university approved it, but they think that the president ought not to have approved it. So they signal that by using the term there. So the thread that's running through all of these things is the idea that you have a, tra- a transboundary exchange of, of value, right? You've got someone using a, a, something from one domain as a, as a value chit in a separate domain. Uh, that, exactly. They're, that they're not supposed to cross that boundary. So in the paper, I use uh, like the very simple example of a parent who's trying to get her kid to do better in school. And let me just say, since I have two teenagers, that I definitely do not do this with my kids. They're super good. I wouldn't want to throw any shade, as they would say. But but a parent who's trying to get her kids to do better in school, who um, uh, pays them money for, you know, each A grade that they get, let's say, on a quiz or test. And some other parent says, how did you get your kids to start doing better in school? If the parent says, oh, I bribe my kids to get good grades, the reason she calls that a bribe and uses that word rather than saying she pays them, now, she might not say she bribes them, but if she says that, she's signaling that she thinks those are uh, things of value from different domains that ought not to be exchanged. And so she's using that term. We can see the idea that the things ought to be of different domains in also some very uh, familiar Uh, examples in the political sphere, uh, you know, log rolling where one legislator exchanges a vote on one bill for uh, a vote on another. People might find that to be not a good way to go about politics, but we don't think of that as bribery, even though something of value is an exchange for an official act. It's not bribery because they're both values within the same domain. So it really, this this way of thinking about bribery really relies on a, a, a deep understanding about spheres of value and that and that they can be different and that yeah. and that what dictates what's inside a sphere versus what's not inside a sphere and therefore would be coming from an external uh, kind of value frame uh, is uh, like having a deep understanding of that stuff is is fundamental to be able to think this way that about uh, a bribery as a topic. I guess going back to my under user... This, under Debbie's value theory. Correct. And in the, pa- the paper goes through other theories of bribery you might have and finds them all wanting. So it's maybe worth returning at some point to that. But under this theory, what you say is the right way of thinking about it. Yes, under yeah, as she lays it out. And I guess in terms of the user fee idea, I suppose one way you could think about that is, well, that the money that's paid by the applicant uh, is not from a different sphere of value. The way the the way this regime has been constructed by the authority that's able to construct it has said that within this sphere of getting a patent application processed 
the money you pay to get that rolling, like that's within the value sphere we have. It's a user fee supported government program. Okay, so that's a that's a nice way of um, thinking about it. It's not how I would think about it, but I think they're going to amount to sort of the same thing. So I want to look at the world and say, uh, you know, do we think of grades and money as part of the same sphere of value, or do we think of um, user uh, patent application and money as part of the same sphere of value? And money is a hard one because, of course, it's it's sort of a general purpose good. Um, so uh, I think you're right. You could think of it that way, that they're part of the same sphere of value. What that does when you think about it that way is I think it collapses my two criteria into one. And maybe mm. that's a more helpful way of thinking about it. So I'm asking, are they from different spheres of value? Is the exchange across the boundary uh, permitted by the relevant decision maker? And the way you're thinking of it is, if it is permitted by the relevant decision maker, it becomes part of the same sphere of value. Um, so it's collapsing those two steps. I'm not opposed to that. <laughs> I laid it out slightly differently, but I think those two are probably going to amount to the same thing, that whether, in a way, both ways of conceiving of it make it the case that whether something's in the same sphere of value is not a normative question, but a more descriptive question about how that society is operating. And that's true on your framing or my framing. Now, we might have some listeners, and I suspect we do, who might be thinking why are why is this so complicated like i i know what bribery is right um <laughs> you know that's it's the things that we call bribes and and what i really love about this paper is it um it's one of those that that points out a puzzle that's there that you might not have been aware was there right the, the little introspection added to something you think you know reveals in fact you don't know it and you know so, so other puzzles like that are like blackmail right mm -hmm. why is blackmail illegal um, and, and what this, what the example of bribery shares with blackmail is it is it points out that there, what is made illegal, is a sum of several acts, each act of which its own, and no one would have a problem with, right? So, um, you know, the fact that I pay someone money is generally okay. The fact that um, you perform some action is okay, but somehow the two of them together add up to illegality, and we have okay. to like model some set of reasons why that would be illegal, and we can't point to the wrongfulness of the constituent acts. It, it's it's something in their interaction. The same thing with blackmail. Like, you know, I, I, I say I'm going to release some damaging information unless you pay me some money, um, but I could release yeah. that damaging information tomorrow. Now, now if, if the releasing of the information itself is illegal, either because it's classified or there's some, some privacy to work. Yeah, yeah, there could be reasons why it would be, but supposing it's not, and it's often not, um, why should it be illegal to condition the release of the information on a demand for money? I actually think your theory has something to say about blackmail as well, um, which is a kind of bribery, maybe. Um, oh, but uh, yeah, I have to think about that. I, I, you know, it's funny because I didn't get into it from the criminal law side. I'm not a criminal law scholar. I got into it because of my interest in campaign finance and what distinguishes a campaign contribution from a bribe. Right. But they're all about what is it appropriate to pay money for, which I like to think about as what's the reach of the market economy or in what ways can we decide certain things are not for sale so to me it's it's similar to questions about prostitution let's say right. or you know it, which is a different way of going than but I, I i agree with you you certainly i should perhaps start thinking about blackmail let me just throw up a, a flare and say given what's happening in the world 
today, um, the impeachment trial of the president, I actually think it'd be it's it's useful also to think about um, the arguments that are being made there, particularly uh, Professor Dershowitz's argument about uh, that there's there there's nothing wrong with uh, the president if he did exchange. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the release of the the UA aid from Ukraine, excuse me, yeah, yeah. for a political favor. So there's a lot that's connected with which we can talk about. I, yeah, I want to get there and I want to get your views on it. Just to get one more really nice example you had in the paper out there, because I think these really simple examples that are, are less connected to political positions that people may have as a matter of identity yeah. are helpful. And the raking leaves example I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is one where, you know, you're, uh, you, you might casually say, yeah, I bribed the kids to rake the leaves outside, you know, your own children. And um, and, and people might have a problem with that um, because, well, of course, you paid someone to rake the leaves. Like if your kids went and raked right. the neighbor's leaves that they would expect to get paid or if they, you know, went across right. town. And so so kind of accepting money for raking leaves is a is a normal part of our market economy. Um, right. Now, the reason it's a normal part is a is a matter of social construction, and that's another nice part of the paper, right? I, you know, how do we determine what what's what and the reach of the market economy? And so it just is. But within a family, a lot of people think, well, raking leaves is like, you know, we've got this leaf problem, and like many problems in a family, we have to kind of pull together to solve these problems. And if we had to exchange dollars right. or some other internal currency to pay each other for all of our contributions, that's just not the way we think about being a family together. So yeah. within the sphere of the family um, – the kinds of considerations are about like mutual thriving and um, alleviating burdens as a matter of uh, um, as a matter of responsibility. Um, you know that we encourage kind of mutual altruism, altruism within this unit, even if we would say for the very same acts you should be able to charge on the out. So all of these kind of norms that we have in the family would point towards saying you ought to rake the leaves just as a matter of family responsibility. But maybe mm-hmm. not every family thinks of it that way, and so right. is it. Is it a bribe? And and I think that example kind of nicely points out that whether you view the paying of your children to rake the leaves as somehow wrongful or 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 um, unseemly or I, I don't know exactly. Probably depend- yeah, probably depends on what you see to be the role yeah. of parenting and and the role of children within the family, which of course is quite obviously culturally and historically contingent. So I think that's exactly right. You put it so nicely that it allows us to see what we're what we're debating, really, that the family who says I bribe my kids to rake the leaves thinks that raking the leaves is a familial obligation and it ought to be that. And I'm not trying to make a statement one way or the other about what the norms of a family ought to be. Um, but the parent who uses that term is signaling that that's what he or she thinks the norms of the family are so that there is something wrongful in offering money in exchange for uh, complying with that obligation. But the parent who says, I pay my kids to rake the leaves, just like you would pay them to rake the leaves, thinks that it's not part of a a family's obligation. And so there's nothing unseemly about the the payment. Um, And I think it, it shows us that when we use the term bribe, we are signaling in part that these domains belong to be, that ought to be separated or are governed by different norms. And that's why I think we have some complicated cases in the political sphere is because we're not sure what we're really debating about is 
the the how much money should be in politics. And so that leaves us with unsettled questions about which things are bribes. And I guess we're also debating who should decide how much money there should be in politics. So there's sort of two facets to the debate, whether it's a court or or a legislature that should decide that. Exactly. So I think there are two, there's always going to, so my theory of bribery is not, uh, it doesn't contain kind of a moral argument within it. It's a, I call it a non-moralized account of bribery. It can accommodate different uh, normative positions one might have, but it gives rise to two important normative questions, which is the question that you signaled about what are the obligations of family life. That is, what are what spheres belong to be separated? Um, is you know does do we pay people for doing things within the family or not? What are the norms of the family and should it be separate from the market or the norms of the political sphere and should it be separate from the market? So that's one type of moral question it gives rise to, and the second type of moral question is the who decides question. Um, I think we all agree in the family context that it's within some boundaries, but certainly as to leaf raking, up to the parents to decide whether leaf raking is a familial obligation in their family. But we have some disagreements on the who decides case uh, with regard to um, political giving and and influence. Yeah, I think that that comes out of just the, the basic issue. Once you see that and I think the leaf raking example shows that your perception of bribery depends on the way that you've constructed the social world. You know, have you constructed it so that this is its own sphere and that's a different sphere, or that these are part of the same sphere? So that your perception of bribery depends on co- uh, social constructions which could be otherwise. Then there will be situations where, because we all live in the same society, we're all going to kind of so believe in the same construction that there really isn't much debate about whether these things are in a different sphere. Like, can you pay somebody else to buy their child, right? That seems to us a completely wrong uh, interaction, right, because of the nature of your responsibilities. And so we've all constructed the world to say that those are different spheres. So, too, if you pay a politician – um, uh, in a with a fancy car in order to adopt a piece of legislation that advantages you but disadvantages the rest of his or her constituents. You know, that's that's the kind of core bribery case, I think, which you identify as, like, where there is a lot of social consensus that those should be separate spheres. Like, whatever, whatever reasons should be driving the politician, they don't include his or her personal enrichment, given that, you know, a lot of our effort in, in governing politicians is in strengthening, you know, agency norms. Um, it's going to be those cases where there's less um, convergence, you know, is is a campaign contribution, which, you know, you stand up and say, I'll give you $100 be, uh, for your campaign because I don't want to see assault weapons banned. And the politician says, well, absolutely, I'm, I'm going to stand up against assault weapons. Like, it almost seems like an agreement. On the other hand, it also seems like a political contribution that has been increasingly normalized. Um, and so the, we, we just don't have a lot of agreement. And in those situations, the who decides question becomes more and more important. Um, whereas the who decides question kind of falls away into the background and becomes absorbed into the society when there's a lot of social convergence, like on the, you know, should you be able to buy other people's children question. I don't know. Does that sound I, right I, to you? That sounds right. I think you're uh, that it's good to start with the kind of uh, cases that we agree on. Um but I think and the cases that we disagree on are going to be ones that show where the different theories point in different directions. But I wonder, even as you described the, the, 
the case of convergence, like the, what I call, I think, the classic bribe, what's interesting about the classic bribe is that on, um, on some theories of bribery, um, it may be difficult to account for the, um, the app, you know, the conversion. So, um, the, the, um, well, I guess you, so if I, you gave the example of, it's certainly true. Like if I say, Hey, I'll give you, you know, $10,000 if you vote the way I want you to on a particular bill, we all agree that that's bribery. And my account explains that by saying that's an exchange of value from different spheres that's prohibited by the relevant decision maker. Right. The other dominant theory, really the dominant theory of bribery wants to uh, locate what makes it a bribe in the violation of pro professional or positional duty. So the legislator should be motivated to do either what her constituents want or what's in her constituents' interest, something along those lines. And if she acts out of self-interest instead, then that creates a problem. That That is what leads it to be bribery. So if she accepts the money because that's good for her, and uh, then she violates her duty of loyalty to do what's good for her constituents. The problem with the um, motivation or loyalty-based account is that it can't account for some other cases that we all agree are either problematic or unproblematic. So to go back to the log rolling example, um, that it seems that the um, uh, if, if I'm concerned about the motivation of the legislature, if I vote for your bill in order to get your vote for my bill, but I'm voting for your bill, even though I don't think it's good for the constituents, then if for, for my constituents, then I'm violating my duty of loyalty. But I don't think we think of that as a case of bribery. And if you try to answer that complaint by saying, well, no, the, the log rolling legislator doesn't have to believe that voting for the bill that the other legislator wants is in her constituents' interest. She just has to think that the package is in her constituents' interest, which I think is how most people would think about it. But the problem is once we go to that package idea, it seems to let in more than we would want. So if a person, so this is the case I call the practical politician. <laughs> if, um, if somebody says, as some contributor says to the practical politician, I'll give you this um, large sum of money if uh, you vote the way I want to, the way I want you to on the bill. And that's supposed to be the case we think is clearly impermissible. But the person thinks, well, voting on that way on the bill isn't good for my constituents, but I'm good for my constituents. <laughs> and I'm more likely to get reelected if I can take this large sum of money you're about to give me and use it on all sorts of advertising and whatnot. And the package of me plus this bill that isn't good for my constituents is good for my constituents. And now it seems we've, we've taken, we've used the motivation or loyalty-based account to validate what we thought was clearly impermissible in the, in the case of the classic bribe. Yeah. So it, it, and you thereby constructed an argument uh, which we will forever after in history call doing a Dershowitz, um, yes. which is to so it's a reductio ad absurdum. Um, but but it's I don't think it destroys the 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 
I think the was it was it, is it uh, Professor Green who writes about this notion of fiduciary duty in 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 uh, helping explain bribery? Yes, yes. So, so I think that, I mean there are other people who have that view, but I think he's the most uh, articulates it the most clearly and sophisticatedly. He's terrific. And I think there's something to the notion that uh, if we could, once we have your account uh, of the existence of a transboundary intrusion of value from one sphere into a, a different sphere where it doesn't belong. Um, we can, we could, I suppose, recharacterize or flesh out the idea of uh, the duty of loyalty that a public official has, for example, as, well, the, in a way, we're saying that this, the substance of your loyalty is that you not allow intrusions of value from other spheres. Like your your job includes understanding what is of what's a legitimate thing to exchange for this and what's not. So you can vote because someone gives you you can vote for the bill because someone gives you a really good reason to think it's a great bill. You could vote for the bill because you think, you know, some other person is willing to vote for yours if you vote for theirs and you think on balance that's acceptable to you. Again, thinking about other your constituents interests and the like. Um but but all along you're you're being encouraged to think about preserving a sphere of value and acting in a way that that supports it and preserves it instead of intrudes on it or attacks it from outside right we could think of loyalty okay. as that sort of idea my view brings it closer to to professor greens to stuart greens to me the difference between the two views is not the characterization of lo- a duty of loyalty versus different spheres, but rather the move from the subjective to to the objective. So the loyalty-based account is focusing on the actual motivation of the legislator. Are Are you properly motivated or poorly motivated? And you're right that you can wrap into what's count, what counts as properly motivated, some boundary crossing kind of idea. Um, But what I want to argue is, the actual motivation of the legislator is not what matters. Mm. Uh, my account is objective in orientation and doesn't focus on legislative motivation. It asks, I don't care how you thinking, how you legislator are thinking about it. Did you exchange things that, you know, as a matter of social understanding are thought of as things of different value? And is that prohibited by the relevant decision maker? I don't want to look into subjective motivation and the, the, I think the problem with subjective motivation is exactly the problem that we see in the practical politician or the doing a Dershowitz. That is the more kind of arrogant, I should have called that the arrogant politician, the more arrogant the politician, that is the more he or she, but more likely he, now be a little sexist, thinks that he's fabulous for the country, the more permissive a subjective motivation account is. I, I think that's one of the harder. That's kind of the hardest case. It, it, um, just to, is it not? The, I mean, this the process of the social proce- process of sphere construction itself is a way of of, of worrying about subjective um, motivations and turning them objective, right? I mean, in other words, you with with the log rolling. Um, mm-hmm. You know, which, by the way, I think some people would would say was wrong and disturbing. 
like I think actually there's probably some contest, especially about people who have not thought a lot about legislatures right. and how legislators should behave. I think if you describe log rolling to them, they would say, well, that's wrong. Well, you can imagine some decision-making scenarios at some points in time in some context where you would think it was wrong and you would be right. If you try to make that description of our actual legislature, like it's not credible, right? But so I'm going to agree with it. Was it Christian yeah. saying that or Joe? Because it's hard for me to know who's talking. So <laughs> I agree with Christian that uh, log rolling could be problematic. And I just want to emphasize that, you know, it's a theory of bribery, not a theory of legislative ethics more generally. Sure. So I actually think that the that the duty of loyalty is about legislative ethics. And I want to leave space for things that are perhaps violations of professional or positional duty. That is, the legislator is violating some her duties of office that aren't the crime of bribery. Hmm. So I, I wonder if, if people really do think log rolling is bribery or they just think it's a violation of legislative ethics. It's not how legislators ought to behave or it's not the right way to go about it. So I, I'm open to that idea. I, I, I don't actually have a well thought out view about whether I think it's a violation of um, of, leg- you know, of like their duties of office. Yeah, I mean, just for but the- I think- just it's not bribery. Yeah, just for the listeners, I mean, log rolling, you know, this is, you know, legislator A goes to legislator B and says, if you vote for my bill, which you otherwise don't want to, then I'll vote for your bill, which you want more than, you know, than you don't want to vote for mine, right? So there's an, a kind of yes. an agreement, and it looks like, well, that looks like bribery. Like, the only reason you're getting my vote is because I'm giving you something that you want. And so if you have this maybe naive theory of bribery, that it just is an agreement to kind of give up. An, uh, um, to do an official act or refuse to do an official act because of something that you're promised, you, you have problems with log rolling. Um, but the the sphere idea kind of brings home that and I think this is the one way to think about it. That if the if what you're getting in a deal like that is power that the, that you then immediately spend within the same sphere, then it's okay, right? So. In other words, this kind of horse trading within the legislature, like you're you're kind of giving up some legislative power in order to get more legislative power to do something else. But all of the spending is going on within that within that sphere, within its currency of value. Whereas we okay, would have a huge problem yeah. if you said, you know, uh, you know, legislator B, if you vote for my bill, I will, uh, you know, my kids will come over and wash your car for the rest of the year or rake your leaves or I'll give you some money. Right. So that's that's, uh, you know, I'm promising you something that you can take outside of the sphere. And now. You know, it's connected to the duty idea because now the reasons that the legislator will act have nothing to do with uh, with with his or her being a faithful agent, but have to do with other things and uh, that that he or she can get outside of the sphere. Okay, so yes and no. So I want to uh, agree with what you set up until the very last minute. So remember, what makes it problematic for me isn't the motivation part, isn't your reasons for action, but just I want to keep it totally objective. But I think it's often the case that what's wrong with a particular thing could be both that it's bribery and it's a violation of legislative duty. So it's some kind of professional, you know, violation of professional norms. But to see the another example like log rolling that really pushes the crossing of boundaries idea is the you know, hyper stylized maybe, but the example of a politician who comes to a campaign rally and says to all the people out there, if you promise to vote for me, I promise not to raise your taxes. And so somebody comes up afterwards and says, great, I accept, you know, I promise Mm -hmm. to vote for you if you promise not to raise my taxes. Now, we might think that a legislator ought not to promise 
uh, not to raise taxes because you know he or she doesn't know what's coming down the pike, and maybe that is a violation of of you know legislative duty. But I don't think anyone thinks that's bribery if the um, if the, those promises were exchanged, and it's not bribery because they're two things. Two, they're both valuable, both promises, but they're valuable within the same domain. Yeah, I guess what with uh, the end of my example with which you disagreed, I, I guess I'm not sure that we disagree so much. But maybe we do. Let's see what you think. Um, that okay. that the process of um, of creating uh, of constructing these spheres as to which we will make objective judgments about whether something's been crossed. Um, that 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 process of saying that's in a separate sphere is um, is created by us out of a conviction about the kinds of reasons which should obtain within the spheres individually, right? So to say that it's a different sphere to engage in the commercial leaf raking business than to rake leaves for the family mm-hmm. is a function of um, more basic views I have about the purposes of us as a family unit and the purposes of the more general market as a market. Right, and so that that that's a contingent story, which could be otherwise in different times and places, and and and, and I think it's con- fully consistent with your view that objective boundary crossing is what leads us to say something is a bribe, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, it's an empirical question what um, spheres the society is actually drawn, how it's yeah. drawn them, and it's and and so it's empirical to observe from the external perspective, but it, from the internal perspective yeah. of drawing spheres, it's a it's a normative question. So I did speak too quickly. So I agree with you that what you said uh, is consistent with my view. The hesitation I have is I think there are probably different ways you can understand what it means to be have different spheres of value. And one is in the way you do about like the norms for reasons for action within that within that sphere. I think that's probably not the only one way to think about it. And I don't want to hmm. um, take a position, I think, right. um, about that. So I agree with you. I did speak too quickly that that <laughs> characterization is totally consistent with my view. I'm just not going uh, – I'm just not taking a position yeah. all the way. I guess you're leaving open that we could have relatively unconsidered – we just perceive something as a different sphere and it can have all kinds of reasons and it may not be yeah. driven by – close analysis of what we really think about value within each sphere. Yeah. Yeah. Or I suppose you could you could also say that you have a considered view of these separate spheres, but you're being driven by a sort of external and consequentialist account of why it would be good for them to be separate rather than an internal uh, sort of subjective account uh of your of their moral obligatory Yeah, nature. I just wonder once it gets controversial and we get into making external consequentialistic you know whether or not that argument actually is isomorphic to the argument about what duties are in each sphere. In other words, we're just you know we're tra- you know we're translating argument about what someone's duties should be within a sphere to um, uh, arguments about whether the spheres should be separate. I mean, ultimately, you're talking about what values should prevail, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and reasons. And so uh, this idea that that spheres are kind of created from the ground up socially kind of gets around that problem. Um, so but the I don't reason know. I'm yeah, the reason I'm, I, the reason I'm hesitating, and I don't mean to be too picky, is one is I want to be kind of ecumenical about um, way, different ways of thinking about what it means to have different spheres of value. But the other is that I think I have a general um, 
resistance, I think kind of reasons for action or subjective motivation matters to questions about culpability. So whether someone has violated their duties of office, but I, I generally have a resistance to subjective motivation as it relates to wrongfulness of action. Mm-hmm. And so um, that makes me hesitant, he- hesitate about the way that you framed it. But I, but I think it's the safest position is to say that I just want to be, um, I want to make one intervention or some interventions into de- the debates about bribery without, um, you know, requiring everyone to agree with me about everything. So I want to <laughs> stay as ecumenical where I can as possible. Well, intent the to loop back to the bribery statute and you, and you, Begin, the federal bribery yeah, statute. You begin yeah. with the federal bribery statute uh, as a as a touchstone. Intent there there is a requisite intent, isn't there? An intent to influence the official action. So it's it's really interesting to think about what. So the the federal bribery statute says whoever corruptly gives offers or promises something of value for an official act, and the uncontroversial intent that you have to have is to have given the something of value for the official act. Right. Um, but it, it, the, when the statute says you have to have corruptly done that, that, I mean, is almost laughable as a statute, especially a criminal statute, because it just raises more questions than it answers. What it, what is it to corruptly give something for the official act? So you have to have intended the exchange but, I mean, you didn't just, like, drop the $100,000 by mistake at the legislator's fee. You know, you had to have, sure. like, intended to give the money in order to get the thing. But um, so that degree of intention, but that's a very thin kind of uh, amount of intention, you might say, that's relevant. But um, to corruptly do it suggests something more. And I think... I view the whole paper in a way as a way to flesh out what would make such a um, action a corrupt instance of right. that action. Yeah, and in that way, the the um, there's a sort of great lineup. I think, uh, like in terms of the word corrupt and its connotations, and the notion of crossing this boundary that you're not supposed to cross, right? Like keeping things. Um, kind of like clean and neat and arranged where they belong. Versus, Everything in its right place. Yeah, yeah. versus like, yeah. oh, that's corrupt. You made it like dirty and it's now it's kind of gross. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think it... Or contaminate. Like you're contaminating right. corrupted. Corrupt something is to contaminate it as if you're leaking something from one sphere mm-hmm. of value into another. Yeah, we so talked about it last corrupt- week. Or it's the financial doping idea, right? You've brought some contaminating agent into the, mm-hmm. the in, into the value, into the, right. uh, you know, yeah. So in that yeah. way, the word corrupt really captures quite beautifully the, um, the, the, what you're identifying as in the important underlying structural problem with yeah. this exchange. Yeah. Uh, there's sort of like oh, a Martha Nussbaum book, like hiding in the, in the middle of this paper implicitly, right? Where she's going to tell all us about, uh, you know, uh, contamination and social contagion and all that stuff. It just, it seems to uh, all fit together. But again, it's like ecumenical in the way that it observes that, you know, and it makes clear the sense in which corruption is a function of 
social construction, right? And that could be okay. otherwise, right? It's a matter of like, well, what's corrupt? Well, you got to look at the country. You got to look at the time. You got to look at what the people think. You may be able to, there may be some things which universally would be considered corrupt because they're, they're so embedded in the human mind that any time and place will come up with these things. But like, you know, a lot of it's going to be, is paying your kids to rake leaves corrupt? Yeah. One family may think so. Another family may not. Like it, it involves some close study. And in that, on that, in, in that vein, Let's can we just talk about the hard problem for a second? Um, yes. Uh, so, actually, instead of talking about the actual Ukraine deal, because um, mm-hmm. this is not a current events podcast, is it, Joe? No, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, the example is: I I think this paper sheds such awesome light on on the ways that like this this current issue could even be a hard issue. I I, I speaking personally, I don't think of it as a hard issue. But that aside, there, there it is like hard to get your hands around exactly what the problem is. Um, but there was a question asked um, to the, um, uh, I think it to the, um, I forget which side it was asked to yesterday, but it was like, so transforming the case a little bit, but preserving, I think, the essential facts. And that's if the president conditioned military aid to Israel on the um, Israeli prime minister coming over and um, saying on American TV or in otherwise making clear that they thought that the president's opponent was an anti-Semite, um, would that be solicitation of a bribe? And, um, and, and, and yeah, I don't know. We can talk about that in terms of the, the federal statute. Um, the federal statute also criminalizes solicitation of a bribe, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You just I didn't mean, have that part. Is why they didn't want to charge bribery because after the recitation of the abuse of power looks like everything is either bribery or solicitation of a bribe. But that's a great question. So I think I want to say two things about these, that, that example. One is that why cases like this, I think, show the problem. This is the point I made before with the subjective motivation approach. Right. And secondly, why my theory is not going to resolve the cases, but it's going to show us why some of the hard cases are hard. Right. That is what we're disagreeing about. It's my favorite kind um, of paper. Oh, good. <laughs> so um, if the president conditions aid to Israel on the Israeli prime minister coming over and saying that the president's opponent is an anti-Semite. And, and let's um, stipulate for that, that the that no one that the Israeli um, prime minister doesn't believe that the person is an anti-Semite and that everyone knows that this would be a smear and a lie or the, or the, at least the president and the and the prime minister know. Yeah. So um, you could see. So the two ways of looking at this problem would be one would be this is the Stuart Green uh, duty based account to ask why the president is doing it and is he properly motivated? And my account would be to ask whether these things are of different spheres of value. So those are the two ways we're going to have on the table to think about it. And I think that the subjective motivation approach is problematic because although the way you've set up the case, we believe that the uh, president is poorly motivated if the president really believes that his real that that smearing his opponent is going to help his reelection and he is so much better for the country than anybody else then he's going to be well motivated the dirge theory 
the Dersh theory. Yeah. That's exactly what Dershowitz said, and it, that just seems crazy. Um, <laughs> the natural uh, defense of the person who's uh, likes the subjective motivation theory is going to say, no, you don't ask whether the package deal is good for the country of, you know, smearing the opponent and helping his reelection. But you just ask if smearing the opponent is is good for the country and you try to separate them. But once you say you can't ask about the package deal, you're going to have a problem with the legislative log roller because the legislative log roller doesn't think the other bill is good for his constituents. And so if you think that one's not bribery, then you have to go with the package deal and that gets you into the problems that with the Dershowitz account. You know, you you have to go all the way with Dershowitz. And if you don't want to do that, I think one virtue of my account is we don't ask about subjective motivation. We keep it objective. Now, keeping it objective doesn't get rid of controversy, though. So we ask, is, um, you know, uh, the... you know, statement by the opponent, statement by the um, president of Israel, the prime minister of Israel, um, something of value, uh, like in the same domain as the, it was conditioning aid, right? Yeah, the military aid, yeah. As the military aid, or is it different? And the thing is, just to put one more example on the table, if um, the president were to say, to a country that, let's say, has a bad human rights record, I'm only going to release the aid that Congress has appropriated if you improve your human rights record. I think most of us think that's appropriate, right? And so why do we think that um, the improving of the human rights record is of the, in the same domain as the military aid? And that has to do with are norms about the things that uh, that can be exchanged by politicians for each other for right. itself, and it's in a it's rather than in a subjective account of what the president believes is good for the country, but rather an objective question about whether it is of you know of public value for let's say my hypothetical country, is it a public value to us for them to improve their human rights record? Arguably, yes, because human rights is one of our values. Can, can, I, but, can I interject for a sec yeah. here? So you've got aid conditioned on the improvement of a human rights record um, in yes. your example. I think when, when we when we look at such a case, I think one thing we would begin to look for, and this goes to your point about objectivity, right? One yes. thing we would look for to, to understand why that assertion was being made and why it was legitimate. What would help legitimate the assertion, I should not release the aid until you have improved your human rights record, is we would see, like, among other things, Congress passing statutes that ask the president to look into the human rights records of other countries, make assessments about yeah. them, inform Congress yeah. of those assessments, make aid decisions. So there are literally statutes that do yeah. this stuff, right? That that say we care about these facts, go find these facts, go to like tell the State Department to make regular reports about those facts so that we're aware of them. So there's a whole informational infrastructure that's put in place that goes to the very um the, the very uh, legitimation of those assessments. Um and, and that's even if there's not a statute which says you can withhold aid if you find these things. True. So long as it just as there yeah. is a 
there are other statutes which make clear this is the kind of thing that we care about. These are the kinds of things we want you to pursue. Right. Now, there's a, yeah. there is an anti I think there's, what is it called, the Empowerment Act or the Anti-Empowerment Act or something like mm-hmm. that. So the, right. a statute um, passed in the wake of the Nixon administration that actually says the president has to spend the money Congress tells him to spend. The uh, when you when when you make a claim, um, and this reminds me a little bit of of Youngstown, uh, the Youngstown case, right, where we've got sort of is is what the president is doing unlawful. Well, there's different things we could look to. Congress might have said you shouldn't do it. Congress might have been silent. Congress might say you should do it. Right. So we we do look for signals from other actors to understand yeah. whether something's been legitimated or not. Right. Okay. So two two. Points. I think I largely agree, but want to make a little uh, slight clarification, I guess. So I want to ask, is it something of public value? And I agree with you that statutes that tell, uh, you know, that ask the president to collect information about human rights abuses or to pay attention to human rights abuses or statutes that have Congress doing that kind of thing, whether they're directing the president to or not, all indicate that it is you know, from an objective perspective, something of public value to the United States, right? So I think those are highly relevant. And I love the Youngstown example, like if there's a statute, that's great evidence. But I don't want to, I think sometimes we can say some things have public value, even if there's not a clear statute saying it, it's just less, from an evidentiary matter, less clear that that is a public value. So the, the more stuff you have like that, the better case you have that it is a public value, um, that, you know, uh, human rights is something that is of public value to the United States. And that makes the case clear. And I love that. Whereas, um, the, um, the, I take it the anti you know, accusing your opponent of being an anti-Semite. The problem is that we're going to have disagreement about whether is so long as everybody knows he's really not an anti-Semite or whatever, you know, calling out anti-Semitism, I guess you could say, is a public value. And that's why it's going to be hard is people are probably going to disagree about whether that is of public value. But now I want to just say one thing about the the Anti-Empowerment Act, that, that where that would figure in my um, scheme is on the question of, is the exchange across values prohibited or permitted. And I guess it slightly says, or somewhat says it's prohibited because you can't be actually conditioning the release of aid on anything. You're just supposed to release the aid, right? Um, If that's what I haven't actually read the act. So, but I'm assuming that's what I think it says. Um, So I would say that um, hasn't, as a matter of fact, I think, we'd have to say, had a huge impact on the kinds of exchanges like the one about, um, you know, improve your human rights record, to the extent that our practice is still to um, permit the president to negotiate a little bit for things that are of public value, as long as he or she doesn't hold up the aid too long, then the act isn't a clear statement of, uh, of a prohibition, mm-hmm. but it certainly is some statement of a pro. I mean, you know, it depends on how forcefully or how importantly you want to read that. Let, let me just complicate and maybe simplify at the same time with just a couple of other um, examples really quick. One, what if instead of uh, withholding military aid, the president said, 
I will go to Israel and announce that I'm that the United States is investigating the corrupt activities of your opponent. If you come to the United States and yeah. announce the same thing about my opponent, um, yeah. from the spheres approach, it's like both of those are in the same awful sphere, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm not sure there's boundary yeah. crossing there. Uh, it yeah. seems like what's wrong with that is the underlying lying and uh, deviousness. But um, and then yeah. I, uh, yeah. the you know another example. Um, uh, well, what was the other example I had in mind? Now. Um, uh, hmm. Now, now I forget, but that th- that may be enough just to um to think okay, about. Okay, so that's a great example. I love it. Um, I think I'm going to totally bite the bullet and say it's not bribery, but that's not the only thing that a public official can do wrong. And that's what I meant to say about there can be duties of legislative ethics or of professional ethics that aren't bribery. So one of the examples I talked about in the paper was the um char- the um case, the bribery case against former governor governor of Illinois, Rod Blagojevich. And what Judge Easterbrook said in striking down the jury instructions in that case of the, the conviction of Blagojevich was invalidated because the jury instructions said um, were, were too broad. So what Blagojevich had uh, allegedly did was offer to President Obama, hey, I'll appoint Valerie Jarrett to the Senate seat that um, Obama had just vacated if you either give me a position in your cabinet or give, provide some help in getting me a private sector job. And the jury instructions allowed the jury to convict Blagojevich if they found that he made either of those two offers. And just Judge Easterbrook said that the exchange of appointing Valerie Jarrett to the Senate seat in exchange for a cabinet position couldn't be bribery. And though he doesn't say this explicitly, it's certainly consistent with my view that the problem is those are two political acts, whereas the uh, doing it for the private sector job, that would be bribery. Um, But I think many of us would think had President Obama accepted and appointed him to the cabinet in exchange for appointing Valerie Jarrett to the Senate seat, there's some problems with that, you know. Um, yeah. doesn't mean that it's a perfect thing to have done just because it's not bribery. What, what though, if, um, you know, taking a page from, like, um, uh, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin, actually, that the the president said to another ally, I am going to announce that we are investigating you as a pedophile um, unless you come over and say bad things about my opponent. Um, so that also, you know, it's, it's you yeah. know, promising to say things that are a lie and it looks more like extortion maybe than bribery, but yeah. you might, yeah. you know, those are kind of equivalent. Um, yeah. And it's, but there's a sense that when the president speaks about what the United States is doing, that he or she is using a public resource and that has to be used right. in certain ways. And so that's right. why, you know, the, you know, I, I, I think what's difficult about these cases is that there is not, there's not um, very good convergence on the boundaries of the spheres. And yeah. so I could eat, I could make an argument that that involved, that that kind of extortion involves boundary crossing. And that's why I would call it extortion. And even the shady deal about um, speaking badly about each other's opponents might be boundary crossing because what the president is 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 exchanging is some is a public resource which is supposed to be used for certain purposes governed by truth and other things or at least in the yeah. in the US yeah. interest and I don't know that that gets into subjective valuations but it does point out this tension between trying to say that you know we're not looking at subjective um intentions yeah. we're looking at value because the value is kind of defined by the kinds of subjective intentions we want people within that sphere to have 
Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. These yeah. these these examples are yeah, kind of troubling great. to me. Yeah, that's a great great example. So I I take your point that the way we define the spheres has it. it it can be recast in a way that makes it almost indistinguishable from the subjective motivation. And so then you might say it's a difference in emphasis rather than uh, such a bright line difference as I'm uh, started out characterizing it. And I think that, I think you might be right out to think about that some more um, about the actual case of, you know, I'll smear your opponent if, or in the extortion version or in the bribery version. Right. I think, I don't know. So I take it that's a pushback because you want to say clearly that is bribery or extortion, but your theory is going to have trouble with it. Um, and I don't know. And then you kind of start to save me by saying, but I could think of it in this spheres account, but then that's going to be controversial and difficult to delineate the spheres. So I, I, I'm torn about it. I think sometimes I'm willing to just say, yeah, maybe maybe those cases really aren't bribery. Bribery is a special offense about, you know, it has something in line with like prostitution and other sphere crossing kinds of ideas. But there's a lot of other bad stuff that public officials can do. We don't have to put it all in the bribery box. Exactly. And I'm okay with that. Or saying, well, you're right. It's hard to see where the spheres are. And maybe that explains why we're not sure. We're sure it's bad, but we're not sure if its badness is just in the kind of um, violation of professional norms and the appropriate ways to use your office, or if it's really the norm, the the wrong of bribery. Well, yeah. And just as, yeah. No, no, I was just going to say that's what I love about about the paper is that you you give us a, a model of reality here which helps us to see why this is a hard case i think i think that the both the extortion yeah. and the ordinary bribery case the, the examples that i mentioned are it's not difficult to have a gut feeling that something very wrong is happening it's difficult to figure out why it's wrong and it's difficult right. to figure out whether you're just going to punish the the president for his or her reasons or if you're going to lump this in with bribery and the and and I think people would argue about that, and I think the recent events have shown that people do argue about whether this counts as bribery. And you give an account for why people might have different intuitions um, about what whether it's bribery, and that's because people there is not there is not really good social convergence on what these spheres are. I think it also helps point out that uh, although you you are very clear about what Professor Green is capturing in his approach and, and how your approach would lead you to different uh, analysis or different uh, intuitions in some instances. But I also think it's the case that, um, and I'm thinking now of, you know, Ethan and Jed and the other people. Ethan Lieb and Jed Sugarman. Yeah, doing yeah. work on fiduciary theories of governance. Right. Of, and if you think about fiduciary duty and corporate law, um, but the, the fact that um, fidelity and loyalty are are really important ideas in how we create social structures and uh, deal with difficult and complex factual uh, projects, right? Um, that captures some of what we want the people involved in those projects to be paying attention to. And the the and knowing what kind of work we can do with uh, transboundary exchanges of value problems and what kind of work we can do with fidelity analysis yeah. and loyalty analysis, which may be 
separate, might capture some of the same stuff, but might capture different stuff. Like it's very right. helpful to get more clear on all this. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think in a way, some of the interesting ca- cases might be cases where there's no violation of of duty, but there is a boundary crossing or where there's a boundary where there's no boundary crossing, but there is a violation of duty. And those are going to be some of the fun cases to talk about. Yeah, like like uh, ordinary blackmail, the kind of blackmail that puzzles people is in a way that boundary right. crossing, which oftentimes does not involve the violation of any duty. Right. Um, right. In fact, sometimes you have a duty. You could say you have an underlying duty to report right. whatever it is, you know, like that somebody has committed a crime. Right. But if you're only doing it to get money, you know, that's what the problem is. Exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. So there's sort of a two by two of, oh, you boy. know, does it, but like, does it violate a, a fiduciary obligation? Does it violate a boundary? Yes or no. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can mm-hmm. have entries, you could have scenarios in all four of those boxes, both right. neither right. one or the other. And the reason I think they get confused is that a lot of the kind of most clear instances of bribery that everyone agrees on are both duty violations and exchanges across boundaries. Yeah, it's very clear that the official who's accepting the the envelope of 10,000 bucks to use however they'd like is clearly putting their own interest first ahead of everyone else's in a way that they're definitely not supposed to do, which is the paradigm case. Definitely not supposed to do here. Because, you know, I think, <laughs> I think enough, in the paper, right. Debbie, you um, mentioned that, you know, the police officer example, they could. Yeah. Know, yeah. Right. But here, uh, the, the getting that uh, 10, th- accepting the $10,000 envelope is clearly putting your interest ahead of your of everyone else's interest uh, in your official duties, uh, which is like the paradigm case of fiduciary duty. It's putting your interest ahead of the interest of the principal. You're the agent. Right. You're, suppo- you're supposed to put the principal's interest right. first, not yours. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not surprising, you could say, that if you believe, if you go with me and you think bribery does involve this uh, boundary crossing, it's that's uh, of spheres of value that uh, as a descriptive matter is prohibited by the relevant decision maker. It's not surprising that a lot of them are duty violations, too. It's only the interesting cases, the, the slightly weird cases that pry those apart. Cool. I think we've taken up enough of your time, Debbie. Yeah, um, this is well, amazing. This is super fun. Yeah, I, I I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the paper, and I'm so glad that you um, you reached out a, a while back after I put my paper up and and alerted me to it, and I actually revised my paper a little bit in in, in light of it because it's just so. Um, I love it that it starts with what seems like an a, a puzzle that you think, oh, I've got an answer to that. This we, this isn't complicated, and then you just kind of unfold layer upon layer to realize, oh, all the answers I thought were good are actually bad, and I really need to think in this uh, more complex way. And I love those kinds of papers. Well, thank you, thank you very, very much. This is great. It was and, totally, and, totally fun, and I hope I get to meet you both in person at some point. That'd yeah, be great. Anytime.